Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Blanford. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. One of the most difficult things to hold on to in today's chaotic world is hope. In our first offering on today's sampler, we'll share a homily in podcast form from Father Mike Schmitz from the podcast series Sunday Homilies with Father Mike Schmitz. This is A Reason for Your Hope. Welcome to Sunday Homilies with me, Father Mike Schmitz. I hope today's homily inspires and motivates you. And I also hope that it leaves you hungry for the one who gave everything to feed you. If you want to get this and other Sunday Mass resources sent straight to your inbox, sign up at ascensionpress.com slash Sunday or by texting Sunday to 33777. You can also follow or subscribe in your podcast app for weekly notifications. God bless. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Glory to you, Lord. Chapter 14, verses 15 through 21. Jesus said to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you, always. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot accept, because it neither sees nor knows him. But you know him, because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live and you will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I was thinking, I'll just jump right in there. You know, St. Peter in the, the second reading today, it, he, has, he has these words that, that these words have, I would say they've kind of defined my life more, not, not more than any other words in scripture, but they have defined my life in a very particular and very powerful way. He says, always be ready. He says, always be ready to give an explanation. And I was just thinking about this, like always be ready. You know, basically, if, if, there's a, if there's someone who's not Christian, someone who's not Catholic, and they, they have a question, always be ready to give an explanation. But the thing that I've come back to me again and again is, is what would someone who's not Catholic or what would someone who's not Christian, what would they notice about me? And this is the question we could, any of us could ask. We could say, so what, what would it be that anyone would notice and would, they would, want, would want an explanation from us? I mean, when was the last time someone just came up right away and just said, hey, tell me, what do you believe? That probably hasn't ever happened. <laughs> if it has happened, it's happened as part of like some kind of like team building exercise or some kind of like get to know you. But it's rare that someone just says, hey, tell me what you believe. So what would they notice? Would, it, would they notice like, oh, this person seems to believe X, Y, and Z. I don't really care. What would the world, what would the people around us, what would your neighbors, what would the people that you work with, what would they want you to give an explanation about? Especially because we have this, this world right now and maybe it's no different than any other time in, in history, but in the world right now where it's kind of just a bunch of opinion, it seems like a bunch of opinion. It seems like everyone is just talking about, um, this is what I think about that. That's what you think about that. This is my truth. That's your truth. So why would anyone care? I think they care about something. And that's what St. Peter highlights, that the world hasn't really changed that much, that the world is kind of the same. And when he says, he says, always be ready to give an explanation for what? For the hope that's within you. He says, always be ready 
to give an explanation for your hope. Because there's, you know, one thing I talked to a bunch of people and they, I don't really care what you believe. But when you see someone live out what they believe and what they believe is something that's based in more than this life, when there's a hope in their heart, when there's hope in their life, when there's hope that actually transforms their lives, they're no longer a teacher. They're now a witness. And that's the huge difference. Because this world, we know this, and Pope Paul VI said this in the 1960s, he said, modern world, the modern man, he says, will not listen to teachers, but will only listen to witnesses. Because the world doesn't care what you think. The world doesn't care what I think. The world doesn't care what we believe. But if we witness to something bigger than ourselves, something more than ourselves, the world does care. Because we want to know what's the secret of the witness. Because we live in a world that has, is so far from hope in so many possible, in so many ways. In fact, St. Paul writing to the Ephesians, he says, before you met Christ, you were without God in this world and without hope in this world. But to have hope is to have a life that's changed. To have hope is, is not just your opinion, my opinion. To have hope is not just your truth and my truth. To have hope is to root your life in the truth. You know, last weekend, Jesus, he made it very clear. What did Jesus say? He said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. So we have to ask this question. We have to ask the question, what's the truth? I want to go back to last week and then launch into this week. The question is, what's, what's, what's truth? In fact, that's what Pontius Pilate asks Jesus, right? He's on trial and Jesus essentially says, I came to bear witness to the truth. Pontius Pilate asks, what is truth? Let's define truth. Let's like, take a second. No, this is, we take all of our students through this. So this is going to be, if you're a student had gone home for the summer and like, oh, I'm sick today. I'm going to watch the mass on, on or worship with, pray with the mass online. Um, this is going to be the same. This is going to be very similar to you. very, very familiar to you because we always ask the question for all of our students, what is truth? And truth can be so convoluted. It can be so complex or it can be really, really simple and clear and understandable and graspable. And it's two words. A definition of truth is simply two words. Truth can be defined as what is. That's it. What is. That, that we realize a statement is either true or false to the degree that it conforms to reality. A statement is either true or false to the degree that it actually accurately reflects what is. So simply truth is what is. And yet at the same time, we have a bunch of opinion, right? We have a world that's full of opinion. We have a world that where people will say, no, no, no. Well, that, Father Mike, that may not, might be nice. That's your truth. My truth is something else. Like you might be Christian. That's wonderful. That's your truth. But I don't believe in Jesus. That's my truth. See, so you're right. You're right. There is such a there is such a thing. We have to go with this. We have to realize that they're not wrong. <laughs> that there is such a thing as your truth and my truth. There is such a thing as what well, we call it subjective truth. There are subjective statements. Every one of us makes subjective statements on a regular basis. We say things like, I like Domino's pizza. Or we say things like, I like caribou coffee up here in Minnesota. Or I say things like, I like driving a little bit over the speed limit. Like all three of those things. Those are subjectively true. You might say, no, I don't like Domino's pizza. Are you kidding me? I like my local pizzeria. Well, well done. Support your local businesses. But like, that's your truth. My truth is Domino's. Yours might say like, Father, I can't believe that you like driving over the speed limit. I never do. I don't like driving over the speed limit. Like, that's wonderful. That's your truth. My truth is five over. I'm fine. Like, I'm not talking 20 over. I'm talking like maybe six. But like, that's my truth. That's your truth. Why? Because that, that is possible to have subjective truths that are true for you, but not true for me. And true for me, but not true for you. That's subjective truth. But the amazing thing, the great thing about this world that God made is he gave us these things like subjective truth, but he also gave us objective truth. The subjective statements are about what? They're about the subject. I like Domino's. You like Diet Coke. Objective truths or objective statements are about the object. There's a Domino's pizza parlor three blocks away from here. That's objectively true. The thing about objective statements, objective statements are either true or false regardless of whether I know it, like it, or believe it. So we're talking about truth. I go, remember, what is? There's such a thing as subjective truth. That's just your truth. And some truth is my truth. 
But when we talk about objective truth, those statements are either true or false, regardless of whether I know it, like it, or believe it. So someone could say, uh, I mean, speaking of speeding, there's a road by, that goes by here, and there was one of our students back in the day. It's a 30 mile an hour zone. And back in the day, a young woman, she was driving. She was going way over that speed limit. She got pulled over by the police officer. And her defense was, I didn't know that it was 30 miles an hour. And the police officer said, you know, I understand. Here's your ticket. Why? Because it's your job to know. If you're driving on the road, it's your job to know. And it still is true, even if you didn't know it. Objective statements are either true or false, even if I don't know it, or if I don't like it. We have had horrible weather here in, in Minnesota, up in Duluth, in the last, this, last, this last spring. It has been spring. I don't know if spring is ever gonna come. If I don't like it, it doesn't change anything. If someone tells me, I'm like, don't look out your window, it's snowing again. The fact that I didn't know it doesn't make it not snow. The fact that I don't like it doesn't make it not snow. If I didn't believe it, if I said, nope, I refuse to believe that it's snowing, question, would that ever affect? If you wanna have a beach day this summer, picnic day this summer, if it starts raining on you, if you just say, I don't believe that that's true, will that change the rain? Absolutely not. It does nothing to affect it. Why? Because statements or objective statements are true or false regardless of whether I know it, like it, or believe it. They are true or false independent of us. They're discovered, not invented. And that's the thing about objective truth. It's discovered, not invented. We discover that gravity exists. We didn't invent it. We discover that there are nine planets in our solar system. We didn't invent that, although Pluto, maybe that is a little bit of inventing or, or some gerrymandering there. But we have this recognition of, yes, there are some things that are subjectively true, true for you, but not true for me. But there's also objective truth that's true for everyone, whether I know it, like it, or believe it. And one of those statements that's either true for everyone or false for everyone is a statement at the heart of what you and I believe as Christians. That statement is, Jesus is God that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no way to the Father except through Jesus. Now, that statement is either true or false. In fact, a lot of times someone's raised Christian, they're raised Catholic, and they're like, you know, I, I, I maybe want to commit my life to Jesus, but listen, what I have to do first is I have to examine all of the other world religions to make sure that I'm making an intelligent decision. And that's not a bad idea. It's a great idea. It's good to know about the world before you make a decision. At the same time, I can make it really simple. For anyone who's considering being a Christian, you don't have to investigate all other world religions first. I just I say invest, investigate one claim, investigate one question. All you have to do to know whether you're going to be a Christian for the rest of your life or anything else is ask and answer one question. Is Jesus who he says he is? Jesus claimed to be God. That's objectively true. His objective statement. He didn't say, I'm like God. I'm like God if you want me to be God. I'm not God if you don't want me to be God. He said, I am God. There's this thing called principle of non-contradiction. A thing cannot both be and not be at the same time in the same way. I know that's a lot of words, but for the principle of non-contradiction, when it comes to objective truth, a thing cannot both be and not be at the same time in the same way. Jesus can't both be God and not be God at the same time and in the same way. He claimed to be God. So the question we have to ask is, is that true? Because that's an objective claim. It is either true or false, regardless of whether I know it, like it, or believe it. You know, one of the things that people say a lot of times about, about Jesus is they'll say things like, no, 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 I, I like the teachings of Jesus. I think Jesus was a holy person. I just don't believe he was God. Or I, I think Jesus was a, he was a prophet. Yeah, he was a good person. Maybe one of the greatest people who ever lived, but he just wasn't God. C.S. Lewis points out, he says, that's the one thing about Jesus we cannot say. Why? Because he actually claimed to be God, which means, if he wasn't God, he wasn't a holy person. If he wasn't God, he wasn't a good man. If he wasn't God, he wasn't one of the best people to ever live. If he wasn't God, he either wasn't God and didn't know it, in which case he was crazy, or he wasn't God and he knew it, 
which case he was lying. Again, in the book, Mere Christianity, highly recommend read. Lewis goes through this thing called the trilemma. Jesus is either the liar, he's a lawyer, <laughs> he's a lawyer, he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. That's the question. That's the only, those are the only options we have. Jesus either knew he wasn't God and said he was, means he lied. He didn't know he wasn't God, but he wasn't, in which case he's a lunatic, or he knew he was God and said he was. Now, here's the question we have to look at. His, his, Lewis goes to this. He says, okay, look at the Gospels. Look at the, all the pictures we have of Jesus by people who actually knew him. Does he strike us as someone who is a liar? And the, the answer is even, even Jesus' enemies, even people who don't like Jesus, the people who hate Jesus, none of them would acclaim, accuse him of being a liar. None of them would come up and say, uh, this man, I mean, think about this. To create such a massive lie that would, you'd, you'd follow the personality profile of someone who would be a compulsive liar, someone who would, would be willing to be a master manipulator, someone who would be someone that narcissistic tendencies, all those pieces. And yet when you see Jesus, when you actually watch him in the Gospels, people who knew him describe him. They describe someone who's the exact opposite of that. So a narcissist is someone who's simply interested in themselves. Someone who's a master manipulator is someone who's not going to give of themselves for someone else in need, who can, they can't give them something back. But all throughout the Gospels, we have a picture of Jesus who is living the exact opposite way. That when he's exhausted, because he's been helping people all day and all night, and he sees a whole new group of people, rather than running away, like I would probably do, Jesus his heart is moved with compassion for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he goes and gives of himself to just continue to heal, continue to continue to help, to continue to make whole. Jesus doesn't fit the personality profile of a liar. And it's, think about this as someone who's crazy. Now, remember, truth is what? Truth is what is. And so we're sane to the degree that our minds conform to what is, right? The more and more our mind, more closely our minds, your mind and my mind, conform to what is, the more sane we are. So if I were to say something like, um, uh, I'm a priest. Okay, that's, that, that statement conforms, conforms to reality. That belief conforms to reality. If I were to say, I am the greatest priest alive. No, that statement does not conform to reality. I am now detached from reality. If I truly believe that, I would be not only wrong, but you'd know that. You'd, you'd be able to see in the rest of my conversations, like, wow, he's not really connected. If I were to say, I am Pope Francis. Hola, como estas? Like, if I really, if I believed that I was the Pope, like, don't tell anyone, you guys. And I really believe that I'll be even more detached from reality. If I thought like, no, actually, um, I'm, I'm St. Peter. I'm the first Pope. I'm not just now Pope. I'm the first Pope. I really believe that a dead Pope, I'm now alive. I'd be so detached from reality. Again, you have a conversation with me, you'd pick on, catch on pretty quick that I was not connected to reality, to what is. If I were to say, um, I'm a butterfly or jelly donut, I'd be even more disconnected from reality. Here's Jesus. When Jesus came on the scene, he didn't just claim to be a prophet. He didn't, he didn't, just, didn't, just, didn't just claim to be the greatest prophet. He didn't claim to just be like Elijah or Jeremiah come back from the dead. Although all those things, if he claimed to be those and he wasn't those, you'd catch on really quickly that he was not connected to reality. What did Jesus claim to be? Jesus actually claimed to be the source of all creation. He, came, he claimed to be the source of all space and time, that before him, nothing existed that all, everything that exists came through him. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, if you'd recognize that my delusion of thinking I'm the greatest priest on the planet would be obvious right away, if a human being walked into the room and said, by the way, you everyone, I'm God, and they weren't, their disconnect from reality would be so great and so obvious, no one would believe them. Jesus is not a liar and he's not a lunatic. That only leaves us with one 
final option, that he actually is who he says he is. And yet, at the same time, this is, this is, remember, this is objective truth. Yet, at the same time, is that just my preference? Like, at the same time, is that just my hope? Is that just my opinion? Is that my wish? Is it true because I want it to be true? Do I believe it because who he says it and I don't have any other options? No, it's true because he proves himself. Again, look through all through scriptures. We Sometimes we think like people back in the day in the first century, if anyone just walked along and said, by the way, you guys, I have some new teachings and I'm God, they'd be like, okay, Jesus, that kind of situation. But that's not the case. They, would, they did exactly what you and I would do. If someone walked into our lives and said, claimed to be God, we would not believe them unless they did what? Unless they proved it. And so that's what Jesus does. In Mark chapter 2, what happens? They have these four friends. They have a paralyzed friend. They bring him to Jesus. They have to lower him through the, through the roof. And Jesus looks at the, the friend's faith, looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, wait a second. Who but God can forgive sins? Here's Jesus is claiming to be God. And Jesus is like, I know, right? That's, that's me. And he says, to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive sins, to prove to you I am who I say I am, he says to the man, rise, pick up your mat, and walk. Jesus does this again and again. In fact, all throughout John's gospel, we've been reading John's gospel for the last number of weeks. All throughout John's gospel, Jesus does these signs and wonders. What are signs? Signs are something that point to something else. His miracles aren't just because God loves us. Of course he does. His miracles are pointing to the fact that his claim is true. Every one of the miracles is a demonstration. Jesus is saying, my claim to be God is not merely opinion. My claim to be God is not a subjective statement. My claim to be God is objective, that he is the Lord of the universe. He is the master of life and death, so much so that even when he himself is crucified, when he himself dies and it seems like, I guess we were wrong, what happens? What we've been celebrating for the last six weeks, the Lord of life and death conquers death and comes back to life. And Jesus demonstrates in his resurrection what we've been celebrating for these, this month and a half. Jesus demonstrates by his resurrection that he is who he says he is. So we know we, got, we, have, we can have faith, we can have confidence. This is the reason for our hope. Remember what St. Peter said, always be ready to give an explanation for the reason for your hope. As I said, that phrase has dominated my, my young life especially. When I was in high school, it was the first time I kind of came to a place of faith in Jesus. And I was like, I want to know. I want to be able to explain this. So I wanted to go to a Catholic college to be able to explain like what it was. What, what is it about Jesus? What, what, is, what is the reason? I want people to ask me, why are you different? I, want, I wanted people to ask me, like, why do you have hope? I wanted people to ask me, like, what do you believe? And so I went to school basically with the express intention of, I want to learn the reason. And that's and what I just shared is some of the reason. Some of the reason for every one of us, objectively speaking, some of the reason that we have as Christians, that we have hope. It's an objective truth. The objective reason why Christians have hope is because Jesus is who he says he is. That's, that's the simple reason. Now you can give an explanation by walking through the liar, lunatic, Lord thing. You can walk through the gospels and see all the miracles. You can even look right now. There are, there are dozens, hundreds, thousands of miracles that happen, documented by the Catholic Church, happen every single year that the name of Jesus continues to heal, the power of Jesus continues to save the Holy Spirit of the, our Lord Jesus Christ continues to transform this world. That's an explanation of the reason for hope. But this is the last thing. St. Peter doesn't just say, always be ready to give an explanation for the reason for hope. The reason for hope is Jesus is Lord. The reason for hope is Jesus is who he says he is. 
But St. Peter says, always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks of a reason for your hope. You know, there are two kinds of truth. There's objective truth, that's truth regardless of whether I know it, like it, or believe it, and there's subjective truth. We know this about Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord of the universe. He is the Lord of time and space. He is the Lord of life and death. He is the Lord of this world. The question is, is Jesus the Lord of my world? Is Jesus the Lord of my life? Do I have hope? There's a reason for hope, and that's Jesus Christ. He has demonstrated he is who he says he is. What's the reason for your hope? I mentioned that I had gone to a college with the hope that I would be able to give her an explanation. What happened, unfortunately, was I was presented with a version of theology that wasn't authentic to the Catholic Church. I was presented with my own pride and my own weakness, and that ultimately, that's, that's the problem. The problem isn't other people. The problem is me. And so I became a missionary in Central America, and I hated the Catholic Church. And I picked and cho- chose what I liked about the faith, and I, and I, and I, I re- neglected or even, even hated what I didn't like about the church. And it wasn't because there weren't good reasons for hope. It's because I found it too hard. I just found it too difficult. I didn't know if I could actually live this life of a Christian. I didn't know if I could actually live the life of a Catholic. There were no arguments that argued me out of belief, no arguments that argued me out of hope, no arguments that argued me out of love. I just struggled because I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I could live it. But then something happened. And in the midst of maybe one of the lowest moments of my life, Jesus stepped in in the, in the shape of a priest in my life. And as I was recovering from that moment, Jesus stepped into my life in the shape of my brothers and sisters who are also missionaries. In that low moment of my life, I returned again to Jesus in adoration and in the Mass. I had been going already the whole time I had been going, but I returned in a different way. And that different way was I was broken and I was humbled. And in that brokenness and in that being humbled, Jesus gave me courage. Jesus gave me the courage to realize that even when I failed, like even when I, there was no way I could ever live this life on my own, that I didn't have to, that even if I kept falling on my face, that he would take me back. I knew, I knew without a doubt that Jesus is the reason for hope, objectively. But when I came to the place where I knew I could trust him and have courage, Jesus became the reason for my hope. I want to always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks for reason for my hope. And I want you to always be ready to give an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope as well. While we now have a reason for hope, we should take the opportunity to pray for hope. From the Our Catholic Prayers podcast series, this is an act of hope, a prayer for a heavenly future with God. Hi, and welcome to this edition of the Our Catholic Prayers podcast. I'm Christopher Castagnoli for OurCatholicPrayers.com. God has a great gift of grace for you. It's called hope. The prayer known as an act of hope reminds us that with God there is no place for despair, no matter what life throws at us, especially these days. 
There is not only a light at the end of the tunnel, believe it or not, even now, as the saying goes, the future's so bright I gotta wear shades. If, as Christ said, with God all things are possible, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 26, hope reminds us that with God's help all things are bearable. The prayer itself sums up the essentials of this grace in one tidy sentence as follows. O my God, relying on your almighty power and infinite mercy and promises, I hope to obtain pardon of my sins, the help of your grace, and life everlasting, through the merits of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Redeemer. Hope, one of three theological virtues along with faith and charity, focuses our desire for happiness on earth in this life into seeking eternal happiness with God in heaven. In doing His will in our lives out of love for Him and for our neighbors, we strive for life everlasting, as this prayer puts it, with God in His heavenly kingdom. If we seek God's grace through prayer and the sacraments, we have great hope indeed, hope that does not disappoint, as St. Paul put it in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 5, of sharing eternal life with our Lord. As St. Paul wrote of the heavenly kingdom awaiting us, I has not seen, nor ear heard, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is taken from his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 9. With hope for the next life, we are much less likely to be discouraged in this one as we keep our eyes on our true home in heaven. Hope is a powerful weapon in our spiritual arsenal against darkness and negativity. As mentioned earlier, God in his generosity has given us two other gifts, faith and charity, to help us in our hope, and each has its own prayer. The Catechism of the Catholic Church points out that prayer nourishes and expresses hope. Prayer helps to dig out the weeds of gloom in our souls in God's garden of grace. Watch out for these two sins against hope, however. Don't let your emotions take you on a roller coaster ride between presumption, assuming God will save you no matter what, and that you don't need his help. And its opposite, despair, assuming God won't save you no matter what, and thus you can't ask for his help. Try to keep on an even keel. Keep close to God in prayer and humility. And remember, as Thomas Akempis advises us in the spiritual classic, The Imitation of Christ, Remember to have a reasonable hope of gaining salvation, but do not act as though you are certain of it, lest you grow indolent and proud.
Note that the act of hope brings up a crucial point in its reference to Jesus as our Redeemer. St. Paul mentions in his letter to the Romans that, as he put it, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. This is taken from his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 10. In dying for our sins, Christ redeemed us for our salvation. Even better, by his death and resurrection, Jesus enabled us to become God's adopted children. As St. Paul also noted, we can now call our Heavenly Father Abba, an affectionate name in Aramaic, the language spoken in Jesus' time for Father. This is taken from his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 16. Bishop Fulton J. Sheen once compared the term to Daddy. Hope in eternal life with God as part of his family increases our joy in good times and strengthens our endurance in bad. Speaking of redemption, it is worth noting that the late John Cardinal O'Connor found new and wonderful hope as Advent approached one year in reflecting on the fact that Jesus came to redeem not just all of mankind, but each one of us personally. We can also have great hope and confidence in God's grace and mercy when we sincerely ask him to pardon our sins. You can do that by going to confession on a regular basis, reciting the act of contrition, and generally seeking God's help in temptations through prayer. The important thing is to approach Him with humility, not despair, when you slip and fall into various sins. And in those dark times, remember what Jesus told His apostles at the Last Supper. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If not, I would have told you, because I go to prepare a place for you. This is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. St. Padre Pio's famous spiritual maxim along this line was, Pray, hope, and don't worry. If we can just live our day-to-day lives, serving God and our neighbors with love, that is its own act of hope indeed. Thanks for listening. I'm Christopher Castagnoli for OurCatholicPrayers.com. Please feel free to share this podcast. And if you're listening to it on YouTube or some other host that allows you to subscribe to podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Our Catholic Prayers podcast channel. Until next time, God bless. You're listening to the Lunchtime Podcast Sampler on Catholic Radio Indy. And we'll be back with more right after this. We've found the source. Just turn it on and it just turns my day around. His name is Jesus. It's really changed my life and changed me for the better. Your search is over. 
Catholic Radio Indy. Do you like game shows? How about trivia? You're listening to Catholic Radio, so I assume you're interested in the Catholic Church. Catholic Challenge 2.0 is the newest addition to our programming lineup here on Catholic Radio Indy. A 30-minute quiz show covering almost everything Catholic. Catholic Challenge 2.0 tests your knowledge and teaches at the same time. Check it out every Thursday afternoon at 4.30 right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. You know, one of the most difficult things to do in life is to admit when we are wrong and to offer a true apology. Are some apologies better than others? Knowing how to apologize is an essential part of life. But do you know what a good apology really is? Our last offering on today's sampler comes from the All Things Catholic series by Dr. Edward Sri as he seeks the answer to this very tricky question. Hi, I'm Edward Sri, and welcome to All Things Catholic, where real faith meets real life. Hi, and welcome to this special edition of All Things Catholic. I'm your host, Edward Sri, and today we're going to talk about something every relationship needs, whether it's a friendship, a marriage, a parent-child relationship, a working relationship. We need to know the art of the apology, the anatomy of an apology. How do you say I'm sorry? And I brought the perfect person up here because I've had to learn many times in our marriage, how to say I'm sorry. And she teaches me and will teach me many things today that I need to live out better in our own marriage and with my kids and with my own friends. And that is my wonderful wife, Beth Sri. So welcome, honey. Hello, friends. Just to be clear, you're saying you do this a lot. I have to do this too. I think you have more experience. You flex the muscle, comes more easily to you. Um, I just have more to apologize no, for. No, I don't think that's accurate. Um I I don't feel like I've had this modeled for me very well. So for me, and what we're sharing today is not like my own thing. I got it from somewhere. I couldn't even tell you where, but it's been helpful for me because I like to think in templates and big picture. And so to know how to go about making and receiving um, an adequate apology, I don't know, it's just some helpful principles. So we wanted to share them with all of you. Now, we're going to go really basic at first, and then I want to share the three key things that you always like to talk about in terms of the anatomy of the apology, the three key things you need in a really good, sincere apology. When you've hurt your spouse, you you let down your, your colleague at work, you didn't turn the thing in on time, or you, you disappointed a friend, you didn't show up at the meeting, whatever it is. How do you really make a good apology? There's three key things that we need to really honor the other person and restore the relationship. But before we get there, let's talk about what, what you don't want to do. What what are some of the good rules of what not to do when you're trying to make an apology? We do this with our kids when when they're doing there's a certain behavior that we're seeing in the home that's not good. We will act out 
the bad scenarios and have us have them tell us what's wrong with it. So in other words, like, so like anyway. when we like we do an apology, well, like we'll act this out with the kids. We do this little role playing thing. Have we and, done it with apologies? We, uh, you know. I think we have. It's been yeah, a while. It has been a it's while. Been a we while. should probably do a probably, refresher. I think we should do a refresher. But this yeah. is how we would do it. Would be so like Beth will pretend to be the little girl. I'll be the little boy, and she does something, takes my toy or something, uh, and then she'll come up to me and she'll say, "I'm sorry if that hurt you," <laughs> or "I'm sorry, but I wanted that toy." Or these I'm, are all the wrong. Things. I'm sorry you felt that way. <laughs> like those are not good apologies. Now that's good for a little child learning that lesson, but. How important that is even for us adults. Well, I would argue that those aren't even apologies. I'm sorry, but anytime there's there's a conditional following the words I'm sorry, it negates the sorry, right? Because you're saying, I'm sorry you felt that way. Um, okay, you know, I'm sorry, but you never do this right. Okay, um, I'm sorry if that was rough for you. Wait, what? Like, that's that's just... That doesn't mean you're really sorry. It's more like you just want to say something and try and make it better and smooth it over without really repairing the rupture that has occurred. It just means something like, oh, I'm kind of sad for you that you're in that situation. It's not acknowledging that I did anything wrong. When I say I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry if, I'm sorry you feel, like, I'm putting it all on you and I'm just, I'm just more like, oh, I empathize that you're- Not you're, even you're, that. Yeah, that you're, it's you're not taking responsibility. Yes. It's not taking responsibility for the harm done. And there can be a variety of reasons that one would do that. But when we endeavor to truly follow after Jesus, we're going to screw up. And we're going to make mistakes. And and it's important that when we do, that we take a minute to think about how our actions affect others, because there is something deeper at play there. And I think we truly love the other person. We honor the other person when we take the time and the care and we have the strength and habit of, of going after it the right way. So we're going to get into the three key things you need for a good apology, but we're starting with just the things people tend to do when they make an apology that makes it not a real apology. So this is, we're starting with the what not to do. So don't give a conditional apology. And then uh, on the other end of, of the relationship, uh, when the person is receiving that, what do, what do we say? We need, we need to really forgive each other, but sometimes people don't do that. And this is all setting it up too, you know, just... Let's say somebody is, you know, level one apology. They really mean, I'm sorry when they say it. They're not going to get into, you know, the three keys to make, uh, to hit the apology really well, but they're really sorry. And so they say, I'm sorry. How do we receive that when we've been harmed? Do we say, you shrug the shoulders and be like, it's okay. No worries. It's fine. Or do we be like, oh yeah, 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 sure, sure, sure. Or, Or do we say, you know, don't worry about it. You know, it's, it's fine. fine. You know, do we kind of just brush it off? And I would say that, that that's not, that's not the best way to do it because we want to say those three words. When we hear, I am sorry, those three words, we want to respond with our own three words. And that is, I forgive you. And I want to say that, especially within marriage to say, I forgive you as quickly as you can, even if you don't feel it. Now I'm talking about the daily generalized, 
hurts that happen in marriage. I'm not talking about like the bigger traumatic things. Those you're going to need more time and more safety and more care around, maybe even professional help. But when I do something wrong and I come to my husband and I say, I'm really sorry. And he says, I forgive you. All of a sudden, it's like a weight has been lifted from our relationship. And if he does something and he comes to me and says, I'm sorry, and I'm still mad and I don't want to let it go. And I, I, there, I have nine reasons why I still want to hold on to it. But if I can just let those go, make an act of the will and say the words, I forgive you, even when I don't feel it, I found that nine times out of 10, the feelings will follow once I say those words. It really is to say I forgive you is a release of what we are owed when an infraction, when something is done to us, some sort of harm has done to us. To say I forgive you means that you don't have to pay it back. That there is someone that is bigger than both of us who has the capacity to pay it back. That would be Jesus. And we're going to let him do it. Um, so it really is a release. It really is um that's the word I'm looking for. I, it reminds me of confession, right? You know, when we, when we go to confession and we confess our sins and then we hear those words from the priest, which is Jesus really speaking through the priest. Mm-hmm. I absolve you of all your sins. I know, that's the best part. It's so beautiful. There is a release, you know, there, mm-hmm. there is a freedom that's found in that. And so I, I think that's beautiful. I, I'd also say one other thing is when we actually... Honor, we actually honor somebody when we say, I forgive you. They've taken the time to acknowledge what they've done wrong, how they've hurt us. And when they come to say sorry and just to say, oh, don't worry about it, it's not a big deal. You know, it I, I negates think, the gift. Exactly. I think it's really, I remember one time, but also, you know, it it also minimizes what really, that there was something that really happened there. I remember years ago, I was in graduate school and there was an older graduate student and I, I don't remember what it was. I said something or I forgot to do something, something happened. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And, and I just, and I thought he was just going to say, oh, don't worry about it. Or, oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. And he said, oh, I accept your apology. I forgive you. And I remember being, whoa, I never had anyone do that before, or at least didn't remember it. But I remember in my young adult years, that moment of that person actually saying, I accept your apology. What it did was it made me realize, you know, those little things that we do, and there may not be big things, but they are little acts of unkindness, little acts of selfishness, little acts of, I lose my temper, or I didn't do what I said I would do. Those little things, they do, they do hurt other people. And, and, and so when you, you say, I forgive you, it's acknowledging that person like, okay, there was, there was a breach. There was something there. There was a rupture and, and now I'm repairing it and, and I'm, I'm allowing this to be repaired and bringing Jesus into this. And that's a beautiful thing. So let's talk about that now. Let's go to those. Oh yeah. One more thing. You want to get? Another thought here. The opposite end of the spectrum to all of this is apologizing for everything. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, oh, that you don't like that. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This, I'm sorry that. I think it's important to remember that the words I'm sorry coming out of your mouth actually mean something and to not throw that phrase around for every little thing. And I know people who who will do that or have done that. And, and even within our relationship, we've had people call us on like, you know, your apology means something <laughs> and you don't need to just throw it out because someone's upset. You know, is it something that you did that was wrong? Is it a sin? Is it, you know, it, maybe someone's offense is on them. So again, you need immense discernment 
to know that. And I think in marriage, we never want to harm our spouse. So if things happen and we do harm our spouse, that's something to apologize for. But I think that's something to weigh. And if if you fall into the category um, of constantly apologizing for everything, oh, it's raining outside, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sick, I'm sorry. You know, like... Like just to kind of think about that, that could be something to to take to prayer, take to spiritual direction and to just kind of consider like, where is that coming from? Why do I do that? What's the deeper root here? Yeah, do I have a need to be accepted, uh, a need to be liked? Is that why I'm apologizing all the time? Um, that, that's good. So great point. Let, let's take a look at then at these three positive ways. What are the three keys we need to really apologize in a way that repairs and restores the relationship? Yes. So the first one um, is pretty straightforward. It is to clearly name the wrong that has been done. So instead of saying, I'm sorry, period, it's, I'm sorry that I blank, that I lost my temper, that I spent too much money at the store. I'm sorry that I was um, frustrated with you and I my tone reflected that and I didn't listen to you because I just wanted you to stop talking because I was so frustrated. I'm sorry that that, that came out on you. Yeah, I think it's important because otherwise it's just, oh, I'm sorry. Right. And it could just be a general blanket and <laughs> the other person's wondering, do you realize what you what you're sorry for. This just actually happened this evening. There was a little issue with one of our kids uh, and there was just a kind of general, I'm sorry, and then I asked the question, what What are you sorry for? And then they thought for a little bit and then they recognized, oh, I'm sorry that I you know, raised my voice or got upset about this thing. And, and so they actually acknowledged it and, that, and that's healthy rather than just the general, I'm sorry. Correct. So what's the second point we need? The second point is to um, have empathy, be empathetic. So I'm sorry that I raised my voice and um, was irritated with, what you said and and how, you know, I can, I can imagine that you felt this, or I bet that made you feel blank. Um, so the empathy is, is acknowledging the effects of your actions. And I think it's important with all three of these to bring curiosity about what you're saying in your apology. Like, I bet that made you feel this. Is that right? Is that accurate? Like, speak into this. Is, am I, am I, is that the right read here? And again, you have to be very careful in doing that because you might be wrong again, or you might be like, well, yeah, that and this and that and this, you know, you could get a whole litany in response. And the worst thing to do, I think, in that predicament would be to be defensive back. Oh, yeah, well, you this, because then you're gonna have to apologize more, right? So instead, and again, as spouses, knowing each other's hearts, receiving each other's hearts, and really just um, recognizing that your spouse wants the best for you, but your spouse is, there's harm. And so that needs to be shared. And to the one who's receiving the apology, obviously, the more gentleness we can bring in sharing exactly how we've been hurt, the better things will go, the more your spouse will want to do this for you. Now, I'm going to give the disclaimer here, and that is we don't live these three principles all the time. <laughs> we don't get this right all the time. It's something we've been thinking about. It. And really, I'll be honest, I've learned a lot from you just because you've been thinking about this and processing this and seeing in our own relationship and with our kids, you know, this, this anatomy of an apology. So let's summarize what we've seen so far. So first, you have to clearly name the wrong that was done. I am sorry that I did this. 
So we clearly name the wrong that we've done. Secondly, to have empathy. Oh, I, I, I bet you felt this way, or I, I, I probably didn't, you know, you probably really felt this, or it, 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 to empathize a bit. I'll, I'll say that when, when you've done that in an apology, I feel so seen. I feel, so, <laughs> no, really, but I feel, I feel like understood. I feel like I'm not alone. I feel like, you know what? Okay. There was a little mistake there, you know, and I want, I think that's probably the biggest thing. I think this this second step may be the most important one, at least just experientially, I say. I just feel like, oh, okay. It was just a little mistake, a little slip up. I've done that many times. I feel like you have entered into where I am and and it gives me the great freedom to like restore things and quickly get to the, I forgive you. So clearly name the wrong the son, empathize. I bet that made you feel, I can imagine it was like, you know, so you're trying to empathize. And then what's the third key that we need for an apology? The third one I think is pretty basic too. It's the natural one. It's what's your plan of action? What are you going to do to, if we say, make sure this never happens again, likely some form of this will happen (laughs) again, but it's helpful that when you've created harm in someone else that you want to tell them that you've been thinking about, or you would like to make it different next time, you know, in the future, I will make sure the trash is out there Thursday night instead of (laughs) leaving for work and you have to do it when you're already late taking kids to school. Hypothetical. (laughs) Totally. From hypothetical. A few days ago. (laughs) And that doesn't always bother me. But when we're running late, it's kind of rough. Or next time I will remember to you know, bring you into this conversation earlier about how many guests we're having over and when they're coming or, you know, whatever the the next, the plan of action is, you got to think through, what does my spouse need? I know I fell in this way. If I could like get a do over, what would I have done differently? And then that's your plan of action. Are you going to fail? Probably at some point. And then guess what? You get to get better at making apologies. So it's a win-win for everybody. Um, but this is this is where the rubber hit, hits the road here. And this is where we grow in humility in just encountering our spouse in this um, very delicate and tender way, but in a way that truly can transform our marriages and truly can lead to greater intimacy and unity because we don't just brush off the pain, but we go right at it together. Yeah, these are things, by the way, the principles we're talking about, we've lived it here in marriage, but we've talked about it with children and family life. The same is true in friendships. It could be with your brother. It could be with your uncle. It could be with a a colleague at work. Uh, The same kind of thing could happen, you know, in the workplace. Okay, I'm sorry I didn't get this in on time. I know that that really let down the team and and it made things a lot harder for you all at the last minute, you know, the empathize. And and then, you know, I, next time I, I, I'm going to make sure I get these things in early and not just wait to the last minute. In other words, like this, this little formula here of clearly naming the wrong done, having empathy, plan for action, you use it all the time in marriage. But I think it's, those are the same principles you want to bring in to your relationship with your boss and your teammates in the office, your fellow parishioners, your, your friends. Teachers and professors. Yes. Yeah. Wherever you are, this is an easy thing to do. I mean, not easy. I mean, honestly, when you first start doing this, it's going to be stiff. It's going to feel forced. It's going to be awkward. But I would encourage you to just keep at it. Like there are times where my husband, (laughs) you knew this was coming, where he'll come up and he'll like put his hand on my shoulder and be like, 
I'm sorry I did this. I bet you felt like this. And I'm like, I just start laughing. And I'm like, yeah, 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 it's fine. But, but, you know? I, but deep down, you love it, I think. Because I do. you see, I really am trying. Right. I, I'm trying to do this better. And so, yeah, I think over time, this and that helps build the trust. Right. Even we, if it is funny. <laughs> but all these things, they really, they help to build the trust. And, and what is trust? I've re- been reading a book recently on... Um, marriage. It's not Catholic or anything, but it's been very fascinating. And the author says that trust consists of three things, safety, belonging, and knowing that you matter in a relationship. And I feel like if if you can get an apology formula, and if you can hit it nine times out of 10, you're going to have a great sense of safety in your relationship. You're going to know that there's belonging there because you're so important to one another that you're going to feel comfortable and natural in humbling yourself um, before the other in a vulnerable place of having done something wrong or in harming the other. And then the person who's receiving your apology will feel like they matter because they know that you're sticking your neck out in order to repair and restore the relationship. All right. So in summary, again, the three keys for making a good apology is clearly name the wrong done, have empathy, and then some kind of plan of action for the future. And all of that builds trust. It repairs the relationship. It restores the relationship. And that's what we long for. And when we do that, we're really taking on the heart of Jesus and and bestowing mercy upon others and receiving that mercy as well. So thank you so much for being on again. Oh, thanks, Dr. Sri, for having me. It's always such a pleasure. (laughs) All right. Well, It's late. We're a little loopy right now. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening. And by the way, if, if you do want to hear more about this and the art of building trust and closeness in marriage amidst the many little trials that come up, there's a book that you and I wrote. What? It came out last year. Uh, What's it called? The Good, the Messy, and the Beautiful, The Joys and Struggles of Real Married Life. And you can find that at Ascension Press. Uh, We'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, So thanks, honey, for being on. And thank you all for listening. If you want to reach Beth, how do they find you? Instagram is probably the easiest, although I'm trying not to be on there as much. I'm at Mrs. Beth Sri, and my website is borntodothis.org. Okay. And you can always find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and my website, edwardsfree.com. That's edwardsri.com. Thanks for listening and God bless. God bless. That's all the time we have for this week's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. This episode, along with links to more of the podcasts we've shared, is available at catholicradioindy.org. I'm Kent Lampert. Have a great week, and may God bless. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.